0: Did Snapchat speed filter cause a fatal high speed accident? And does Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act protect it from liability? Associate Dean and Professor Eric Goldman from Santa Clara University School of Law joins us. I'm Lawrence Clutty, and this is Legal Talk today. Welcome back, listeners. It's a privilege being here with you, and thank you for tuning in. We have a wonderful guest today and a very important case to talk about. But before we jump into that, we need to thank our sponsor for their generous support, NOTA. NOTA is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more, and that's NOTA spelled N O T A. As always, terms and conditions may apply. Okay, let's greet our guest, Eric Goldman, among many things. He's an associate dean and professor of law at the Santa Clara University School of Law. Welcome to the show, Professor. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. No, thank you for coming on. I wanted to, uh, you know, I caught this uh, storyline first on ABA Journal about this important case we're going to cover today. And, you know, unfortunately, it's associated with some tragic and very sad events, a loss of family members' children, in an unfortunate and very, uh, well, it was a deadly deadly car crash. And we're going to get into the facts of that and what happened. But also, in part, this case is going to potentially bring up Section 230 here, may define some liability boundaries for tech companies as they design their products. So, Professor, help us out here, you know, like you do uh, with your classes. You know, let's start with the facts of the case. You know, what happened with this accident? Why is Snapchat getting sued?
1: Yeah, as you said, it's really a tragic story about three boys in a car driving too fast. Uh, According to uh, the evidence, the boys were driving up to 123 miles per hour. And unfortunately, at those high speeds, mistakes can occur that can be fatal. In this case, the boys lost control of the car, crashed, and all died. So the question uh, that came up is, why were they driving 123 miles per hour? And the uh, family members suing Snapchat said it's because of Snapchat's speed filter that they were trying to record a high speed using this uh, speed filter that Snapchat provided, and that made Snapchat liable for their behavior. Well, let's build that out just a little bit. You know some of
0: our some of our listeners may not be ultra familiar with Snapchat. And so Snapchat, for those that are not familiar, is a communications app. And similar to text messaging, it'll send you know written text messages to you know whoever it is you want to communicate with, like your friend or something like that. And it also has uh, the ability to send pictures. Now, what makes Snapchat special is it has these these filters that come through and you can turn yourself into a deer or reindeer during Christmas season. Or you can, uh, you know, there's there's superhero filters and things like that. But basically, it's like Photoshop. You can kind of do special things with uh, pictures and video and send it to your friends. It's tended to be a fun app. And so anyway, the, the speed filter, Professor, you now, how did it work? And it's linked to this reward system that exists within Snapchat. So maybe build that out a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, most people know Snapchat as the social media where the photos or videos, quote, disappear that they're time-limited and then once consumed, the recipient can't get them. But as you point out, the issue here isn't that disappearing feature. It's about the fact that Snapchat provided, essentially, content scripting or authoring tools. It gave users a set of tools to enhance the content that they were already producing. In this case, the enhancement was taking a photo or video of the movement of the cell phone and the speed at which it was going, and then Snapchat's speed filter would imprint the speed that that the cell phone was moving onto the content that was being created by the users. So think about it as you described, I like the new reindeer filter uh filter, you know, where you can put the antlers on your head. Instead of putting the antlers on the head, you can imprint the uh speed that the cell phone's moving onto the uh the image or video that was being created. And so the idea is that people were using this speed filter to try to record as high a speed as possible so they could impress their friends. And the allegation of the complaint is that Snapchat provided some kind of reward system for users who who were able to create and display content showing that they were traveling over 100 miles per hour. That's all innuendo. And in fact, Snapchat never said anything to that effect. That was a supposition that uh, the boys might have had. But the idea was that maybe they thought if they could uh, show something going over 100 miles per hour, that uh, they would get some bonus uh, recognition in the Snapchat environment.
0: As I understand, you know, with Snapchat, you know, some of the bonus rewards you know, like get additional filters. so You can do different things than some of your friends that maybe didn't do something for Snapchat. So there's sort of this gamesmanship, if you will, where you get points, a point system or additional features, kind of like a video game. And so my, my, my last uh, follow up question to you on that, just with this matter here, professor, yeah, this, this filter, was it created by a third party or did Snapchat generate it itself?
1: As far as I know, the filter is part of Snapchat's technology or part of its software application, and it wouldn't really matter from legal standpoint whether Snapchat manufactured that code itself or if it acquired the code from a third party. The key though is that when the user displays the photo or video showing the speed filter attached to it, that's still going to be the user's content with this addition of the the speed filter using this, this scripting or authoring tool.
0: Now I read the case, and uh, you know the case seemed to sort of generate two separate theories of liability for the defendant here, Snapchat. And so at the district court level, where this uh, case was originally filed, they talked about those those two different theories of liability. There was some opportunity to amend the complaint for the plaintiffs. And then upon, I guess it was, the, as I understand, the second amended complaint, the uh, district court decided that only one route of liability was going to apply when they made their decision. So take us through that a little bit, and then we'll uh, I'll have some follow-ups about uh, Section 230 and also the uh, the design defect.
1: So the district court kind of skipped over the theories of liability and went to Snapchat's centerpiece defense where Snapchat said the family members of the deceased boys are trying to hold us liable for the content that the boys were creating. And we're not liable for their content because because of Section 230. Section 230 says, in short, that websites or uh, apps aren't liable for third-party content. And so Snapchat's theory was really quite simple. It said, we're not liable for the videos or photos that the boys are creating. You're trying to hold us liable for that section to the replies. And the district court said, that's right. The connection between the speed filter and the content that the boys are creating is so close that really the plaintiff's trying to hold Snapchat liable for the boys' content.
0: Now, Section 230, I want to put a little more meat on the bone here. Now, we've covered Section 230 on this show before, Professor. And so this is the reason we have the internet. It's a very important uh, uh, piece of regulation here, where or a very important law, where we actually protect these platforms. And probably the simplest example that I think most people can identify with is if uh, there's a blogging platform out there, say, like WordPress. You know, And WordPress has bells and whistles and features and things that make these posts really nice. But they're not held accountable or held liable if someone that uses their product goes out there. and post defamatory information against another party. So the reason we have Section 230 is so that we have the internet. So tell us about that just a little bit, why that's so critically important. And it does play a role here. And that's just one of the avenues for liability. Then we'll
1: get into the Court of Appeals. Just to clarify, so Section 230 doesn't create any liability itself. It's a defense against liability, but because it applies to so many different claims, people talk about it as its own standalone entity. It doesn't matter if the plaintiff is suing for defamation or, in this case, for some kind of negligence design. If the plaintiffs are trying to hold an app or a website liable for third-party content, Section 230 just ends that discussion. And that really has been the foundation of our modern internet. We're conducting this call uh, on Zoom today. Zoom relies on Section 230. We couldn't have had the kind of support that we relied upon during the uh, pandemic shutdown without the services that enabled us to talk to each other. And those all depend on Section 230. We rely upon them for things like consumer reviews, and we rely upon them for things like Wikipedia and ability to get information in an online peer-edited encyclopedia. If we revert, engineer your daily activity and you think, what services am I using? How much am I using them? And how important is Section 230 services? You're going to find that you're probably dealing with Section 230 protected services on an hourly, if not minute by minute basis. All right, now, Professor, you're going to know more about this than I do. Now, there's a a
0: three-part test, or they call it a three-prong test, from Barnes and Yahoo Incorporated case that uh, applies to an analysis of Section 230, where you can basically remove that immunity. So if you could uh, assemble that for us and then compare it to the product liability, so this this design flaw that the plaintiffs were ultimately uh, claiming with their amended complaint, talk about those two, and then we'll talk about what the
1: appeals court decided. Yeah. So one of the reasons why Section 230 is so powerful is that it doesn't really depend upon the nature of the claim with some limited exceptions that we'll talk about. And instead, it says if a defendant qualifies on the following three standards or the prongs that you mentioned, then they automatically win. And we don't have to go and ask any other question um, that lawyers are used to asking. It just takes care of the case. So the three prongs are the defendant has to be what's called a provider or user of an interactive computer service. In practice, that pretty much applies to everyone who's connected to the internet. So that prong rarely is in play. The second thing is that the uh, claim has to treat the defendant as a publisher or speaker of third-party content. And most claims treat defendants as a publisher or speaker of third-party content unless the claim fits into one of the statutory exceptions. That includes things like intellectual property claims and federal criminal prosecutions. And then the third prong is that it has to be based on information provided by another information content provider, basically third-party content. So what it says, if you put the three together, is anyone connected to the internet is not liable unless there's these statutory exceptions for third party content. And so if the defendant can show those three elements, then they they automatically win the case. And so that's what the district court did. It said you were su- the the plaintiffs are suing based on the boys content, the plaintiff loses. But the appeals court saw it differently and I think we're going to get to that.
0: Let's assemble that, too. So th- this was a part that the district court didn't get to. So they made their decision based on a Section 230 argument. Now, the, uh, the amended complaint, as the plaintiffs are putting forth, is a design liability. So the way this this app was set up with its incentives for uh, reckless driving to provide rewards uh, was found. Uh, they're, 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 um, what they were asserting is that this was a negligent design. So uh, assemble that test for us. What would they have to prove to succeed? Or I guess what would the defense have to show in order to not be sued for that?
1: Well, so we've had many different attempts to hold internet services liable for how they design their services. It's really a backdoor attempt and trying to hold them liable for the third party content published on that service. This comes up in a variety of cases. It can come up in a case like Yelp and Consumer Reviews saying that Yelp designed its service to encourage negative reviews, or it can come up in the context of Amazon's Marketplace where Amazon posts the advertisements of third parties. And uh, if those products cause injury, then the plaintiffs come and say, you designed your service to allow these third party uh, vendors to sell harmful products. So this kind of argument comes up a lot in Section 230 land. And so long as the goal of the plaintiffs is to hold the the website uh, liable for third-party content, Section 230 applies. And it's actually pretty straightforward. But it isn't straightforward because the plaintiffs are trying to argue, we're not suing you based on third-party content. We're suing you based on how you built your service in the first place. And most times courts see right through that, just like the district court did in the case we're discussing. They said, no, you're really trying to hold the website liable for third-party content. And so we're, gonna, we're not going to let you plead around Section 230 by saying, Suing based on how you built your site, not based on third-party content. But here in the appellate court, the plaintiffs actually got the court, the court to to see it their way that they were suing based on how the site was designed, not based on third-party content.
0: Okay, let's get to the appeals court decision. And so now it looks backwards at the district court and says, no, it was not right for you to dismiss this on Section Two Thirty grounds. This is a liability suit based on how this app was built. So uh, take us through their logic here. Why were these posts that were, and and the way that the fact pattern was assembled is that one of these posts at high speed happened right before the accident, and so Snapchat saying, look, it's not our fault that somebody went out there and posted. You know, this out there, it's not our fault that other people do this. You know, we can't be held accountable for what other
1: people post. Why did the appeals court not see it Snapchat's way? Well, so let's start with the procedural posture of the case. This was a motion to dismiss. So the court had to accept all the plaintiff's allegations as true. And then the plaintiffs did something pretty interesting. They said, we are, we are waiving any claim based on the dissemination of the photos or videos with the speed filter. We're not suing based on those. We're saying that because the, serv- because the service created these incentives to, to engage in risky behavior, we're only suing on that. And we would have brought that claim even if they had never posted their content. And so the appeals court then is left in this dilemma. They're saying, well, the plaintiffs have said they're not suing based on third-party content. They've made that entirely clear that they've waived any claim based on that. They're suing purely based on the fact that the service design motivated dangerous behavior. And so the appeals court said, we have to accept all the, those allegations as true. And if that's true, they're not suing based on third-party content, then section two thirty cannot apply by definition. Now, the, the district court said basically, come on, we know that the only reason why the boys were engaged in that behavior is because they were publishing third-party content. So in the end, if they were never going to publish their third-party content, we wouldn't have seen them motivated to engage in the dangerous behavior. So the district court said you can't really cleave the two apart, the, the output of the filter from the design of the filter. But the, but the appeal court said we can cleave those apart and only focus on this dangerous behavior, irrespective of what content ever gets published.
0: At the end of the day, though, the appeals court's not making a decision whether or not Snapchat will be liable to uh, the plaintiffs here. Ultimately, this is like, hey, district court, you know, we need to do a little bit more analysis here. So, I guess from that point of view, what's the next step? Uh, I guess what happens to the parties after this?
1: Yeah, so it's a really important point for people to understand. The appellate court didn't say that the plaintiffs win, the appellate court said, That when the district court kicked the case out on Section 230, it was wrong to do so, but all other parts of the litigation are still in play. That means that the plaintiff still has to prove its prima facie case, and the defendant still can introduce a wide range of other defenses. Now, this is really a potentially not very good news for the plaintiff, and let me explain why they got the appeal the court to reverse the dismissal, so in that sense, they won. But there was a parallel case very, very similar in its facts that was uh, that's been taking place in the Georgia court where uh, the Georgia appellate court said that Snapchat wasn't liable for the design of its speed filter, irrespective of section two thirty because it didn't owe any duty to the uh, plaintiffs. So it's quite possible, I think actually probable, that on a remand, the district court's going to dismiss the case without Section 230 on basically the plaintiff's prima facie case, that there was no duty owed. Plaintiffs don't have any standing to, uh, don't have any claim, uh, legitimate claim uh, to pursue. So this is one of these head-scratcher cases where the appellate court opened up the door for potential liability, but chances are that the plaintiffs aren't going to be able to go through that door in practice. And so I've been struggling with this case because I know that a lot of people are excited about getting around Section 230, but if the plaintiff ultimately loses the case and the Georgia case predicts that it will, what really was served in any of this process?
0: Yeah, it's an interesting point. And it seems to me, at least from my, my vantage point, you know, a really- really thin line that divides it from content as opposed to a negligent design. It's still based on a communication medium, but in one analysis, it's about the behaviors and the incentivized behaviors that caused a fatal outcome versus words that maybe caused uh, a negative outcome. So yeah, it's a really, really close one there. So uh, where, where do you think, uh, I guess, if
1: you're, if you're making the prediction, where do you think the court's going to hold? So based on the Georgia case, I think that the plaintiffs are ultimately not going to prevail in this case. And so the result or the when the dust settles, the net effect of the Ninth Circuit's ruling is it said. Section 230 doesn't apply here. So bring your cases, and plaintiffs are going to bring their cases, and then they're going to lose anyway. And so all that the Ninth Circuit really did is kind of messed up Section 230 law, but it didn't actually benefit the plaintiffs at all. So in my opinion, this leads us into worse outcome. We still know plaintiffs are going to lose. Uh, Section 230 got messed up. So more plaintiffs are going to be wasting their time. More defendants are going to have to be spending their money defending cases with no change in outcomes. So I'm pretty disappointed by that outcome that might be technically correct based on the Ninth Circuit's reading of the law. I don't personally agree with that, but I'm fine if people see it that way. But you do have to ask that bigger question. So how does this benefit anybody? If it doesn't benefit anybody, uh, it just messes up the law, then actually really I don't think we would consider that to be a good outcome.
0: Well, Professor, thank you for being here. It was an enlightening discussion and I really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We know you have many podcast options out there, so we really appreciate your time that you invest with us. And one more thank you to our sponsor, Nota. You can find them at trustnotacom forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough, and our LTN audio crew for their continued hard work. Much appreciated. This has been Legal Talk today. I'm Lawrence Clutty. Have a great day, everybody.